Welcome to the Building Educator Capacity Podcast, where we strive to improve student learning by expanding the capacity of our school districts. I am Phil Anderson, your host today, and I'm joined once again by co-host Mitchell Lilly. How is it going today, Mitchell? Hey, Phil. Always good to be here. Glad to have you here, Mitchell. Today, we have a very exciting and in-depth discussion with Jan Birkins and Carrie Yates, authors of Shifting the Balance, Six Ways to Bring the Science of Reading into the Balanced Literacy Classroom. Our curriculum and coaching consultant, Mary Jo Ziegler, dives into the heart of the question, what's the best way to support young readers in reading and learning? This conversation works to define the science of reading and everything early childhood educators must consider as new research develops. Shifting the Balance is a new book that reconsiders some balanced literacy practices, examining the current science in the field of child development. Authors Jan Berkus and Carrie Yates both have deep roots in early childhood education and share a passion for supporting students and their teachers in the earliest stages of reading and writing development. During their careers, they have served as classroom teachers, coordinators, consultants, and more, in addition to being authors of a variety of other books. Thank you both for being with us today with our CEPA2 group. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to just introduce yourselves real quickly and share just a little bit about your journey toward authoring this book. <laughs> sure. Well, we, first of all, just really want to thank you as well, Mary Jo. We're so excited and really honored to be part of this podcast and to be able to connect with with you and um, the the educators you support in this way. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mary Jo. I'm uh, I'm Carrie, and I have I've just retired from a long career in public education that has taken me, you know, into a lot of different aspects. I started as a classroom teacher. I spent time as a reading interventionist a special education teacher uh, working with early childhood special ed, so particularly kindergarten and first grade students. Um, I also spent some time over on the dark side of administration (laughs) um, as both a building principal and district level administrator. Um, And and through all that time, I mean, and and I've I've worked as an author and consultant as well for, for many years. And Jan and I have been good friends for many years. And we found ourselves, we found ourselves in the place of uh, deciding if we had the courage to move our friendship into the next level of tackling a project together. (laughs) (laughs) How about that, Jan? How about I hand off to you there? Okay. And it's been a fun ride. It has definitely been a fun ride. And so we, well, I'm going to, I'm going to just give you a little bit of my background first. I, um, I also have been at this for quite some time, <laughs> um, 30 plus years. And I spent eight years as a classroom teacher. I worked as an interventionist. I worked at seven years as a literacy coach in an elementary school. I worked on the district level as the coordinator for literacy in a district and I also was the region uh, was a language arts consultant in a regional service agency, kind of like CISA um, for the state of Georgia. So I was a K 
through 12 language arts consultant there. And I've done some part-time work as a part-time assistant professor at the University of Georgia. And like Carrie, I've been consulting and writing books for a long time and just have really been um, both challenged um, and excited to dig into this current project alongside Carrie. It's proved to be a very stretching and gratifying and fun and often very, very fun um, collaboration. So thank you. And yet it started off to be, I mean, I won't curse this early in the podcast, (laughs) but it started off to be really scary as all get out Uh because first of all, we had a friendship in place that we hoped to, um, you know, continue to nurture. And secondly, because you know, what got us writing this book was having to kind of step back from our own egos and ask ourselves, what in the world is this conversation and all of this pushback about current practices? And what is it that we're missing? And to really decide we're going to kind of join hands and, and bravely try to face whatever might be in the research that we had, you know, not been fully bringing to life in our practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, we were both just felt like it was, um, we had a responsibility not to dismiss concerns that were coming up that, that we just couldn't believe that, that such a broad group of folks that there would be nothing to what they were saying. It might not be as extreme as they were saying, but there might be some truth to it. And we had to open our hearts and minds and really um, look honestly. And so we decided to do that together. It, It took a little nudging. She's, she's laughing because I was the one who was, you know, a hard no um, from the beginning. I mean, I said, I'm happy to dig into this with you, but no, not going to put myself in the middle of um, this conversation, <laughs> writing a book that basically, you know, in many ways is, I mean, in many ways, I, you can ask my family, ask my kids, ask my husband, I'm not that good at saying I was wrong. This, these words don't actually that easily <laughs> cross my lips. And so oh, yeah. it, that's, based, you know, 200 pages of publicly saying, let's rethink some of the things that, you know, Jan and I have not only done ourselves as teachers in the classroom, but also as school leaders, district leaders, consultants, we've we've supported teachers in, in doing. And so when Jan says responsibility, I I think that's something we very much take to heart Mm -hmm. is we're all advocates for children. We just, we just want to figure out what's the best way to support small children in becoming readers and writers. And Mm -hmm. even if that means swallowing some adult ego, I was just going to say, I think um, that's part of why the book has generated so much excitement in the field. Um, I think um, I too have been in the literacy world for about 35 years now and, and so have been part of this ongoing 
debate around best practices in literacy and the fact that the two of you had the courage to dive in and bring the two worlds together and find some common ground um, is creating a lot of excitement in the literacy world in Wisconsin anyway. And so I guess I was hoping that you could kick off for us today with just helping us define what the science of reading is and, and what that means as you dove into the project, how you interpreted that. So sure. you want to start with just sort of a light question, Mary Jo. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> like just brush the surface. We're just going to brush the surface here. Let's just, <laughs> you know, we, we, before we really answer the question proper, we, we want to mention that the the label science of reading is a tricky label and we want to acknowledge that. And yeah. so, I mean, anytime you're having dicey or challenging or possibly triggering conversations, any of the labels you might use become potentially problematic, but for the most part, it facilitates a conversation. So we're going to continue to use it in this podcast, but we acknowledge that they're are lots of different kinds of science. We acknowledge that, um, you know, there's a place for qualitative um, reviews of literature. So, or reviews of qualitative literature, and it's not just quantitative that, that really matters. And so they, and they do offer a formal definition of science of reading at the Reading League website, um, but in more conversational terms, you know, speaking conversationally, which is what Carrie and I like to do. Um, the science of reading is basically a body of knowledge about how the brain learns to read. And at this point, it's a really big body of knowledge that's grown out of scientific research in lots of different areas. But there are, you know, because there are lots of researchers interested in how children learn to read, it's not just educators who want to know about this. We can draw on information from scientists who study lots of different domains like cognitive psychology or linguistics or communications or neuroscience. And all these different fields intersect um, with their explorations of how the human brain learns to read and write. So, but in a nutshell, even making it more conversational, the science aligned practices are those that are grounded in how the brain learns to read. That is thinking about the reader from the inside out. In contrast, many of our common practices, including some of those that Carrie was just talking about, you know, prominent ones that we've studied and taught and focused on, you know, they rely on making inferences about what we think is going on inside the brain because we're watching children from the outside in. And unfortunately, some of the instructional decisions we've been making based on kid watching and intuiting what's going on inside children's heads. Well, now we know they don't hold up. They don't hold up when you consider the scientific research across all these different domains. And some of this research has been around for decades and some of it is newer and some of it began as theories that have since been confirmed with brain imaging and neuroscience. And so these researchers in different areas of study have been arriving at common overlapping insights, which is, it's all great news. It's great news for us as educators. Absolutely. Yeah, because we can use this information to make it easier for kids to learn to read, which is what can happen 
when you translate the research into classroom practices, which is what our book is all about. So how to shift to an inside out approach when you're a balanced literacy teacher. And I think if we can really truly keep ourselves focused on the idea that it is good news that we've mm-hmm. missed some things. It is good news that we've misunderstood some things because there's not a school or classroom in this country where there aren't kids that we're sort of like, we, we can't figure it out. They're not learning to read. It's not because we're not all working hard. Everybody's working mm-hmm. as hard as they can. So isn't it good news to learn that hey, there might be some shifts we can make that are really well grounded in what we now know about the brain. I just, I get kind of goosebumpy to think about that. (laughs) Right. And it it really, honestly, when we think about education in general, it is, and what makes people fall in love with the field is that we have to be continuously learning because we Mm -hmm. are always trying to figure it out, right? We're always trying to get better and grow as educators. And so this is just another layer of learning for us all to dive into and deeply understand so that we can better serve our students. Absolutely. Thank you again. Um, I really do think the book is a lovely way to explore the learning um, that can be incorporated in our classrooms. I know that one of the pieces that um, you dive into in the initial chapters of the book is the piece around phonological awareness. Um, And it seems like that's a piece of the science of reading that is getting a a lot of attention in the field as well. And so if you wouldn't mind starting us off by sort of helping us define phonological awareness versus phonics versus spelling, sometimes those words get kind of interchanged in people's conversations. So if we could start Mm -hmm. with just some definitions, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's true. Phonological awareness is getting a lot of attention again these days. And it's true that there's confusion, I think, between phonological awareness and phonics instruction and even more because we've got phonemic awareness in the mix as well. We kind of have a lot of these, not F words, but PH words. (laughs) And um, there is confusion. And that's not only because they sound alike, but it's also because there is a great deal of overlap. And in some ways, you know, phonics and phonemic awareness are, are very much reciprocal skill sets that, that can and should be woven together in complementary ways. But we do need to really clearly tease out the differences. And what we know is that for children who have struggled to get a strong start with reading, often it's because we, not because something's wrong with them, but because we've neglected to really help them develop this very unnatural work for their, that their brain needs to learn to do to become readers. Learning language is natural for the human brain, but there are some, some pieces that the reading brain has to master that are very unnatural. And this work of phonemic awareness is one of them. And so in chapter two of our book, we really take a look at phonemic awareness and the importance of getting more intentional about it. And one of the features of the book that that I think it it makes it work for teachers, what we hear from teachers is we've taken the approach of here are some misunderstandings we've had. And and here's kind of what we need to untangle about that. And, And one of the first misunderstandings in chapter 
to or shift to is that phonemic awareness and phonics are the same thing. So sort of the same question you happen to be asking. And, and phonological awareness, to clarify, is sort of that, that big, broad umbrella term, that general term for work that is helping students to notice and manipulate the parts of speech. Um, but, but phonological work can include you know, things like identifying words in a sentence or syllable clapping or identifying you know, that words rhyme with each other that sort of thing. So to think about a sentence like Jan has a giant pan. I mm. just came up with that. It's got a rhyme <laughs> in it. Um, right. And to be able to pull that apart and think, oh, it's got a certain number of words. Jan has a giant pan, five words. It's got one word in it that actually has two parts. You know, giant has two syllables and it has some words that even rhyme. That's all phonological work. And then there's this phonemic awareness, which is being able to dig inside one of those words. So take that word pan and to be able to really sort of pry apart the sounds and recognize that pan is made up of three distinctive individual sounds, p-a-n, and that those sounds can be manipulated in different ways and to understand beginning, ending, middle sound, and changing out. All of that has so much to do with the thinking we need in order to become readers. Mm -hmm. And so of that big, broad phonological awareness work, which is all really fun, first of all, but helpful to kids, it's getting to the phoneme level that we have to really kind of make sure we have an urgency about doing to get inside of words to really get to the phoneme level. So phoneme, phoneme awareness is working with those sounds in words and really helping that brain attune to the work of getting to the interior sounds of words. Phonics then, which is the term that we're probably more familiar with and is often top of mind when we think of beginning reading instruction, Phonics is, it's understanding how the, the symbols or the code of our language match up to those individual sounds that are in words. And phonics in our book is um, the focus of chapter three. And we acknowledge that we don't know of any schools that don't already have phonics instruction in play but there's probably some real opportunity to think about our phonics instruction and make sure that it's as strong as it possibly can be. So we've got phonological awareness, we've got phonemic awareness, getting down to the sound level, we've got phonics, which is really teaching kids how, you know, it's, it's letting them in on the secrets of the code. Yep. Teaching mm -hmm. them to decode language is, there's this abstract system. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got to understand these little black marks and how they link to sounds. And, and so that's, that's the clarity. But I think for us, the exciting work is thinking about how phonics and phonemic awareness come together. Mm -hmm. When kids acquire alphabetic principle, this magical moment where they go, ah, I can hear sounds in words. I know some symbols that represent sounds and writing pulls those two together when we go from speech to print and reading mm -hmm. also pulls them together as we go from print to speech. 
And then would you say spelling is then as we move into conventional um, work with the way words, I mean, pulling those sounds together in script in a more conventional form, that's when we start calling it spelling. Because I do think there's confusion there as well. I think people have used phonics, spelling, and word work interchangeably. And mm -hmm. I guess I was wondering if you had a, a way that you helped distinguish those three at all. Yeah, so spelling, I think uh, we think of spelling as sort of the subset of phonics. And spelling is understanding how to use the symbols in order to take speech to print. And, and I think one of the things we've been thinking a lot about lately is that, and, and we got support from this great little book from Janine Heron. Jan, remind me of the name of it. Making Speech Visible. Thank you making speech visible. And she really pushes throughout that book on wouldn't we help kids if we really started from a spelling perspective versus a reading perspective, which more naturally mimics how written language came to be in the first place. We had messages that we were trying to put down in writing. Spelling really is just, it is an crucial part of phonics instruction. Mm -hmm. And really should just be thought of as, you know, phonics isn't just about learning to read. It's about learning to encode and decode. And the and chapter four in the book, I think, connects to this because there's, you know, if you're talking about very beginning readers as, you know, if they know a grapheme for each phoneme, then they can begin. And if they have phonemic awareness, then they can begin crafting their ideas but then gradually they're going to become more accurate with their spelling as more and more words um, become sight words or become automatic for them. And so that's the purview of chapter four, where we dig into how children actually learn words, how to spell them, how to read them. So there's all the chapters are so connected. It's hard to. Yeah, kind of and chapter four is such a powerful one for us as balanced literacy educators wouldn't you say Jan I would I would I mean, I mean if you're talking so, about spelling so often the words that children are having difficulty spelling are those words that we consider you know they're on the word wall they're the sight words they're the you know they're yeah. the fourth graders who are misspelling you know the same word they've been misspelling for three years you know and so yeah. Chapter four is a great, um, a really, really practical, they're all practical, but we, we're kind of partial to chapter four. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that getting students as young as kindergarten engaged in creating texts through writing Absolutely. is a very valuable way for them oh. to learn to encode our language into script and it supports their phonics development. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, writing from the beginning and writing every day. And if you're teaching phonics, don't try to do it without writing. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you for that. <laughs> and, and some of the most powerful writing we know kids can do is writing that they care about, right? Mm -hmm. When you have something that you want to say and make permanent, that's speech to print. And that's the, that's the most powerful practical reason to want to become literate, I think, mm -hmm. is to communicate that. 
And so I guess going off of what you mentioned earlier, you said something about oral language is sort of a, or develops naturally. And I also um, remember from reading the book that you talked a lot about how critical that oral language development mm -hmm. is. So, can, and, and especially as kids maybe go beyond um, kindergarten, first and second grade. So can you speak a little bit to that whole um, oral language development and how it impacts reading going forward, even beyond the primary years? Absolutely. And you. Yeah. You love, you love the oral language. I love the oral language piece. I get really, really passionate about it. I always have. And it's such a great question, Mary Jo. You know, it's the focus of the first chapter of the book and we put it there on purpose. You know, we wanted to make sure that we communicated out of the gate that a lot of the instructional moves that we've historically used in balanced literacy classrooms are in fact supported by this body of science. And and, but also to communicate that the ultimate goal of all reading instruction is still reading comprehension. Even though we're, we're talking a bit about decoding, it's all in service of reading comprehension. And that's affected not only by our ability to read the words, which is super important, but also by our knowledge of the language that we're reading. And so, you know, this was some really cool science for us to dig into. You know, we learned as we were writing this book about the parts of the brain that process and comprehend spoken language. And what's fascinating is that the same parts process language when we read text. So the brain doesn't know the difference between hearing words spoken and reading them to the brain it's all hearing language. So the mechanisms in our brains translate the words we read into speech so that the language processing parts of our brains can comprehend them. So literally, we listen to the words in our head when we read text. No such thing as silent reading. No such okay. thing, not really. Even when you're reading silently, as Janine Heron says, your brain is still reading out loud. Yeah. And so the part that is comprehending spoken language, whether it's listening to someone talk, whether you're listening to this podcast and comprehending it, or whether you're reading an article, that's the same part of the brain. And that we're hardwired with that equipment. That process happens naturally given certain, certain circumstances. I mean, we've got to be in language to learn language, but it comes relatively easily to us. But the part where we attach that speech to print, where we map that speech onto graphemes, that is not natural. So, but if we don't have the language comprehension to understand something spoken, we won't understand it read. And for that reason, we have to be building this, this body of language for children so that they have it to draw on when they later read those words. So it's really a pay it forward system that you are, you know, the first graders can comprehend spoken language beyond what they're going to be able to read in those beginning reading texts. And it's just as important, just as important that we're building that language as it is that we are teaching them how the alphabetic system works. So I, like I said, I get really worked up. <laughs> I get very excited about this topic. So I guess then 
we have the idea that we need to be developing and growing their oral language in order for them to continue to navigate more and more complex text. Absolutely. And we have to be thinking about teaching them strategies for decoding text. Yes. Gradually those, building, right? Yes. And, and, so, and what you're describing is the simple view of reading. And, and we're kind of thinking about the language comprehension part of that simple view of reading formula. And, and so anything that we're doing to help them comprehend spoken language, whether it's read aloud, turn and talk, using interesting vocabulary throughout the day, using text sets to build knowledge, all of these things are super important to later reading comprehension. And so there's this one strategy um, in the book called Dialogic Conversations, and it comes from the work of Grover Whitehurst. And we won't elaborate on it here, but there is a downloadable available at our site, thesixshifts.com. And it's just this simple routine, which you can integrate into read aloud, really into any conversation. And it has the potential to really accelerate language development, which eventually contributes to reading comprehension. So acceleration, you know, it's what we really need right now. We're really, that's on our minds as kids are coming back to school after being, you know, after having such disjointed times with the pandemic. So, so definitely I hear you saying rich read aloud experiences. Mm -hmm. Also, there's been a lot of conversation about decodable text versus leveled text. Can you speak a little bit to the variety of text students need to have access to in those early years? Yeah. And what I, um, I mean, I was just thinking about this with the previous question. One of the beautiful things about what Jan is describing is that if we are committed to really rich read aloud and experiences throughout the day that really help build children's background knowledge and vocabulary, we can sort of lift off some of our, some of the weight from those little books to have to do it all. And whether you're talking about predictable leveled guided reading texts, or you're talking about decodable, more, you know, more controlled decodable text. Look, if you've been a kindergarten or first grade teacher trying to choose really great books for the beginningist readers, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to tell really, <laughs> really great, engaging, interesting stories with such a limited core of words to work with. Let's just admit that. <laughs> but those books don't have to do it all, even though we believe and we see more and more books all the time that are doing they're, they're beautiful books for young readers. But I think part of my guilt or worry as a balanced literacy educator thinking about this is, you know, those decodable texts, what if they don't give kids enough to, you know, think about or talk about right, and right. isn't ultimately meaning making everything and it, it is ultimately everything. But one of the things I think that we've learned is we need to carry more of the load for comprehension and language elsewhere so that we can really help kids get good at figuring out how to read those words in their little books. And the time with little books can't be the time for everything. 
And so, you know, you're talking, you, you're kind of asked this question about the mix of decodable texts and leveled texts. And um, this is the focus of chapter six of the book, which just as Jan said, chapter one is where it is for a reason. Chapter six is also where it is for a reason, because this idea of thinking about those little books ultimately draws on everything else that we've built up to in the book. Mm -hmm. And spoiler alert, um, <laughs> you know, the research and our work have led us to sort of come around to seeing an important role for more decodable texts in our early literacy classrooms, especially in that kindergarten and first part of first grade. And because I think as what we want and what we've really come to feel so passionate about is that when we're asking kids to spend time with these first little books, we want to make sure that as much of the print they encounter as possible, they have the skills to really navigate. And one of the things we've learned as we've studied Lene Aries stages of, or Lene Aries phases of reading development is that, you know, some of what kids do initially relying on picture cues and all sorts of other types of information, it is what they do, but it isn't what we're trying to teach them to do. What we're trying to teach them to do is to learn that they can rely on the print and they can really depend on the print. And so we have to kind of take some fresh eyes, first of all, to some of the books we've used in the past and ask ourselves, are they helping children learn to you know, rely on the print? But we're going to have a mix of types of texts um, mm -hmm. and we want kids to spend time independently with texts. And we aren't believers that kids should only touch books that they can read completely or that are completely decodable to them. I mean, we don't believe that. Mm -hmm. um, we think kids should spend time with lots of different books themselves for lots of different reasons, but sometimes they'll be spending time with books that they are enjoying in other ways. And sometimes we want them to have more independent practice with books that they are actually going to read all of the words. Mm -hmm. And I think in kindergarten and first parts of first grade or those readers who are still reading at the early stages of that first grade mm -hmm. year, we've got to take a lot of care in selecting those first texts that they're going to read all of the words. And more and more, we've got to just really help ourselves develop new skills for thinking about how much, I mean, English isn't as undependable as people think. It's actually quite dependable. The problem is it takes some time to learn the secret code, right? It takes right. some time to learn all of that. They're not ready for all kinds of words initially. So so we can use some care there. And one of our favorite strategies is to simply, you know, if kids have book bags or boxes where they've chosen some text they're going to have during an independent book time themselves, we like to just slide an extra Ziploc bag in there. And that Ziploc bag is especially for those books that they're going to read all the words. And that means those are books that we feel really confident that they're, they're aligned. And we use that term aligned texts 
mean that they are both highly decodable, but not just for anybody, they're decodable for these children at this moment in time. And that's important too, because just because a book is decodable, doesn't mean it's decodable by this child right now. <laughs> so it sounds like it sounds like you're trying to set them up to have a lot of successful experiences with their reading, right? A so that, lot of successful experiences because Mary Jo, they need a lot of practice. Mm-hmm. They need a lot of, and not just practice with a whole bunch of different things. They need a lot of practice with the thing they're trying to master right now so that it can actually contribute to those brain friendly ways of words getting stored and actually feeding their future success as well. So, yes. And Mary Jo's success may look like hard work some. So we've used predictable text in the past because we wanted kids to feel like readers as soon as possible but, but there's been a bit of a trade-off in the ways that predictable text lead kids away from the print. And so we really are one of the shifts is to recognizing that, you know, the inside out model supports that children need to really look at all the parts of a word every time they read a word. So, and, and decodable text really does support that brain development um, better. So teachers, educators are caring people. It's how we ended up in this profession. We love and care about kids and we want to create success for them. But what we now come to realize is that some of the ways we created success, like use the picture to figure out what the word is. It's, I mean, there are a couple of the reasons it's problematic is it's not sustainable because it's not very far beyond level B, C, D books where that completely starts to fall apart on kids. There's too much going on on the page to depend on that. And so it's a compensatory strategy that completely falls apart. But secondly, when we take, like Jan said, we take their eyes away from the print, we take away that work we sometimes use this thing like spanks versus exercise (laughs) and give them the spanks. Oh, I love that. (laughs) But they have to do the work. They've got to do some sit-ups. They've got to actually learn how to go across that whole word. That's building that orthographic processing system. And Jan Mm -hmm. talked about how ultimately once we're proficient readers, it all to the brain is the same, but in order to get that orthographic processing system online, it's got to build some muscle, man. It's got to dig into some words and do some work. Yeah. I know when I was an interventionist, it seemed like kids often got stuck right around that 12, 13 level or the, the JK kind of level where the pictures disappeared, right? Because they had been using the pictures to support so much of their comprehension and, and navigation of words. And so all of this really resonates with me. Yeah. So you what talk looked about like early success starts to really fall apart. Fall apart. Yeah. Whole bunch yep. of ways. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I mean, my next question then is, as we're thinking about our balanced literacy classrooms, are there components 
of the balanced literacy classroom that need to be replaced with things? Or is it just a gentle shift? Like I think about interactive writing and shared reading and, and guided reading or flexible group um, instruct strategy instruction. Are those pieces all still important pieces to the balanced literacy classroom or how are the, what kinds of shifts or changes need to be in our practices? There's um, a million dollar question. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, of, we wrote a little book about that. Yes. <laughs> we wrote a little book about that. Right. It's, there's not a short answer to this, to this question, Mary Jo. It's, you know, we would say interactive writing is just, there's so, there's so many ways that that connects with an inside out model and, and is very, very sound. So we're big fans of interactive writing, but really, you know, if we're thinking about instructional context, if we're thinking about read aloud, shared reading, small group reading instruction, independent reading, it's less, do any of those need to be completely eliminated and more, what do we need to do to make some of the practices within those contexts um, better aligned with what we know about how the brain learns to read? Mm -hmm. And so because what's been happening is inadvertently, because we've been working from an outside-in model, we've, we've accidentally been making it harder for kids to learn to read. And it makes our work harder too, right? So, but in all of those places, what the first thing that needs to happen is we really, and we, and this was why we wrote the book as we did with half of the chapter of each chapter, really grounding the science and half of the chapter talking about shifts to practice, because really what needs to happen is looking at each of these instructional contexts, contexts and looking at your practices and considering what is the mental model that is driving this instructional move? Is this based on what we know about how the brain learns to read? Or is it based on what we've assumed from watching readers or just by saying, this is what good readers do. So we're going to do this now with, um, with children. And so it's, it's not, it's not as categorical as let's just get rid of shared reading. You know, it's, it's let's, make some shifts in shared reading. And I would say to your question, Mary Jo, you know, is it throw it out or is it general shifts? I would say probably in most cases, it's somewhere in between. And it might start with a, with a small shift. Um, and generally those small shifts, you know, there, there's a chain reaction, but it will take some intention in looking at each of those contexts. And so they need to be connected to what we know about how the alphabetic system works. Yeah. And, and that was, the, that was another point I wanted to make was that really on a, on a broader sense, historically as balanced literacy educators, we've had these instructional contexts, read aloud, shared, guided, independent, and then over separate, we've had word work. Right. And so I think one of the overarching um, adjustments that needs to happen is that word work has to be a part it's not that word work has to be a part of it all. It's that the thinking that helps us understand what children need about understanding the alphabetic system needs to align into all those instructional contexts. So it's not disjointed. So it's, it's better connected. So the books they're using in small group are the books they need to practice because of what they've just learned in word work. Same with the shared reading work. 
And I, I think I think that um, you know there are some small shifts we can make and need to make, but there also are a few really key big shifts, and and we're not we're not going to sugarcoat that mm -hmm. um, because there are a few things that are big, yeah. um, but but everything comes back to really building an understanding of the science. And then balanced literacy practices look really different from place to place. So you have to do your own work of understanding the science and evaluating your practices. But then, I mean, there are some places where, you know, I think when it comes to small group instruction, that's one where I think we all are going to need to really challenge ourselves to re rethink some things that have felt really familiar and comfortable, starting with how we prompt children. And right. so it's a mix. I think it's a mix of some keep, right, mm -hmm. Jan? Yes. Some revise and some let's stop doing that like today. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and I think the book goes nicely into details and, and, and supports teacher reflection in that way so that you can examine each of those practices and really and really consider the, the shifts that you need to make in your own practice. So mm -hmm. I feel like there's a lot um, to support that work. Um, any big essential takeaways or understandings that you think are essential to building principals or district administrators in this work? If you were in those roles, how might you approach this with your staff? So, you know, I think if we can, we are touched every day. We have an online class that we've um, been offering. We are touched by all of the individual teachers who are just like, get out their credit card, sign up for the class, buy the book. They're going to do this. And we, we are truly inspired by pioneer teachers who are setting out mm. to make some shifts in their own settings. But we also know that the most transformative, powerful work will happen in schools and systems where school leaders really invite themselves, push themselves into understanding beginning reading practices and supporting their staff in making these shifts. And I think, you know, we've both been in school leadership roles. We've deeply studied the technical reading science side of this, but we've also spent a lot of time in these last months thinking about, you know, that the science and dynamics of human change and what it takes to successfully guide change in a school where we, I mean, we'll be the first ones to say our egos get triggered easily. I mean, Jan and I, we, we, we can really get our egos triggered and we can get defensive and, you know, so this is not just technical understand reading science work. This is also work of the heart and understanding how to support human beings. So that's one thing that I think, you know, this most successful administrators that have mentored me and that I've been inspired by in my career have been people who really get that. And, you know, I think the number one thing, it kind of goes back to your previous question, 
figuring out what to do differently can only happen when people really understand the science and what's what's different about this than what we've kind of been thinking. And so the best way I think for any school leader to support this work is to invest in teachers and invest in ways for teachers to understand understand the science so that you then are, are kind of at this place where you can collectively reflect on where you are and commit to um, where you're going to head. So, you know, I think those are a few things that that stand out to me in terms of there's no more critical person in terms of school change work than that building principle. And so um, if if you're lucky enough to work with a building principal who's willing to be a humble learner, him or herself, you're going to be positioned well for this work. So I guess uh, add anything to that, Jan? Well, I just, you know, we, we've added opportunities for, you know, we've offered a lot of flexibility if schools or districts participate in the online class together, because we really just appreciate so much when schools have that leadership and they dig in together. So, um, I mean, often at the end of our online class, people are saying, okay, I'm getting ready to go and have a conversation with my building principal. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm trying to sort of gather my thoughts for that. And, um, I know the plates of school leaders are really full, but this is critically important work. And in, in the elementary school, Social emotional learning and literacy learning are, I mean, they are biggies and they also go hand in hand. And we know that things start to socially and emotionally fall apart for kids early on when they don't successfully learn to read and write. So I think um, my, as we know, happens in education often, whenever there's some new um, ideas or innovations out on the table, we often see all kinds of products on the market that are going to be the quick fix for the schools or buildings to um, solve all of our problems. And I guess I really appreciated when I read in the book that this isn't something you can buy your way out of, right, (laughs) basically. And so I just wondered if you had any specific cautions or ideas or specific um, things to consider for products or purchases when considering um, making these shifts to your balanced literacy program? Sure, sure. We really, we know that, um, you know, we know, Mary Jo, that that a lot of folks in balanced literacy uh, schools and districts really have ha- have some um, maybe even some trauma around programs. You know, programs can be problematic, um, and so we really did make a point to make the book full of ideas about how to get started without making any big financial investments. We wanted to. We wanted to impress on readers that an individual teacher can dig in and start and make small but meaningful shifts to practice, even without a big budget, even with the resources that are just right there on hand. And some of the shifts will naturally lead to conversations about getting new materials, um, but there are low budget, homegrown ways to go about some of this work. And it really is. It really is a misunderstanding out there that science of reading is a program. 
And, you know, back question one was what, what is science of reading? Well, it is not, it is not a program. And you can have programs that are more or less aligned to the science or, you know, have instructional practices that align with how the brain learns to read. So if you hate the idea of using a program, you can still align your practices to the scientific research. And it's true. It's true, Mary Jo. I mean, boy, the market is inundated right now with things that quote unquote, our science of reading, right? And there are a lot of bad phonics programs out there. There are a lot of, there are a lot of bad basal programs out there. There are a lot, there are a lot of bad programs out there. And so, and really we don't think there is a perfect way to go about this, that, that everything, even if you did decide to purchase something to support you, there would be flaws in it. There would be things, there would be reasons to understand the science well enough to know what the program doesn't do for you. And was, to, yeah. I was thinking when you said there are a lot of bad programs out there, I was thinking, and there are a lot of good programs out there, there are. that are also imperfect. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's a great way like, to say it. Programs are like people. I think they're all a little imperfect. <laughs> they are. They Nothing are. replaces a well-educated educator, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. that goes back to that previous question about how can principals support this? It's please don't buy a quick fix program and plunk mm -hmm. it on your teacher's desks and say, here, and now we're doing, you know, this, yeah. you got to invest in teachers because teachers are no program's going to work without an effective teacher um, knowing how to make the decisions. Yeah. And by the same token, you may decide that you want the support of a program. And I think in the in traditionally in balanced literacy, there's been some stigma about having a program at all. But you know, I think we need to make space for this is more complex than we understood. And there there may be a time it might be appropriate to have some support. If you decide that you're going to do something, you know, more homegrown, you are going to need to, you know, if you're developing a scope and sequence, you're going to need to have, you're going to need to consider linguistics. You're going to need to consider neuroscience. It's not as simple as, you know, well, here's something I did last year that went really well, right? And yeah. let's all just bring our activities and put them together. It's really, really complex. So we do want to give a word of caution when we say you can do it without a program, you definitely can, but it's not a piece of cake and it's not just falling, you know, it's not just falling off a log. I got two cliches there in a row. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not an end all be all, right. but right. on the other hand, teachers, we know are tired, man. Yeah. I mean, teachers are tired and they've got more on their plates than ever. And so I think if we can also, like you say, move past the fear of, you know, something that we purchase being also really helpful, like yeah. necessary in some cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely a word of caution because there is a lot of stuff coming out. That's the good side of that is that you have a lot to choose from. <laughs> we're getting really close to the end of our time together today. Um, and so I just wanted to give you one last opportunity. Is there anything else that you think it's really important to make sure we get out to educators around the um, concept of embedding the science of reading into our balanced literacy classrooms? You know, I think um, 
we just would want to leave educators with encouragement that um, you can start small. Um, it's easy to give in to sort of overwhelm at times. And uh, we're real believers in that a single person, a single decision, a single action can start some momentum that can really, you know, be, to use another cliche, that domino effect. Um, but we are believers in a domino effect approach to more substantive change. So even if you are that lone teacher, who's, who's the first one in your school to say, Hey, maybe it's time to start to question and, you know, look for ways to make learning to read easier. You can do things that really make an impact and you can, um, you can start that domino effect yourself. And so that's, that's why we wrote the book. Cause we believe that it's possible to really get started. That's the purpose of our online class is to really help teachers get a, a solid understanding of the science so they can choose from those potential starting points and, and let's choose starting points and, and make a difference for kids. Thank you very much to Jan and Carrie and Mary Jo for that very insightful conversation. There are just so many great takeaways that you had there. This is a very important time to reconsider literacy education especially after this disrupted time of learning due to COVID. Making sure kids are reading a variety of different books, considering the idea of teaching phonics. These were all great things to consider moving forward. No doubt. And whether you're directly involved in early childhood literacy education or not, I think when they mentioned it's good news, we've misunderstood some things. It speaks to all of us that there's still so much to learn about the brain and learning development. It's very exciting to reconsider what we already know and to develop new techniques to better educate the new and next generation of students. I know we have other episodes this season related to literacy, so I'm excited to hear more stories about literacy development and stories from other experts in the field. Yeah, those are going to be great episodes, so I hope you'll tune into those as well. I want to give a special thanks to Ms. Liz Elliott, band teacher from Whitewater Middle School, for providing the music for this podcast as always. Be sure to check out all the resources our guests have shared for this podcast regarding early literacy development on our website at cisa2.org slash podcast and learn more about their new book at thesixshifts.com. Links to everything are in the description of this podcast. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Building Educator Capacity. To be the first to know when our next episode lands, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.